Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and appreciation of the lesser-known Jolly. I am Rachel Nisbet, and with me, my co-host... P.C. Imstop. God, it's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while. Sorry, guys. Yeah, we, we apologise. We've been out of action for quite a few months now, so it's, it's good to be back. Yeah, it certainly is. But with good reason, though. Yes, do you want to tell, tell our listeners our news? Well, we've recorded our very first audio commentary, so that's been very exciting. And you've been very busy and recording two more audio commentaries. Yeah, in the space of a month, I think. The, the timeline wasn't great, was it? Because we had our joint one, and I was up in the Highlands, and I was bent over a dressing table trying to record with Peter. And then the minute I got back, it was like, you've got to do two audio commentaries in a, in a month and a week. So that was very stressful, but we've got that all done now, haven't we? Touch wood. Wait. Yeah, we have. Unfortunately, we can't tell you for which film it is yet, but we're really looking forward to letting you know as soon as we can. Yeah, we'll definitely keep you updated. But it was really fun to do. Um, we just kind of approached it a wee bit like a, a Fragments episode. So we hope everyone... Well, just an extended Fragments episode with yeah. references to what's on screen. But we hope you all enjoy it when it's announced. Yeah, editing was slightly more difficult than a normal Fragments episode. That's the problem when it's like you're doing something to, to screen. Yeah. Yeah, complete nightmare. Peter had that kind of with our joint commentary and then I had the fun of it with my two commentaries and you always forget like how difficult that is until you start doing it and you're like, oh my God, this is really stressful. But a lot of fun. So we're really proud that we were asked and and we're really looking forward to, um, to seeing the finished results so you guys can listen to it. Yeah, and... We want to thank everyone as well because it's only through, you know, everyone listening to this podcast that we're able to gain that exposure as this kind of duo and get the practice to be able to do it. Because without, you know, having learned all that we have doing this podcast, I don't think we would have been so confident in just, you know, tackling an audio commentary. So, yeah, thanks to everyone for your support. Yeah. And to all our patrons for the patience as well, because you actually pay money for content. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for being patient with us. And we've got lots coming up and we'll be back to normal i think after this month yeah or hopefully from this month like you said it's been a little while since we last recorded so speaking of patrons we have the pleasure of welcoming four new patrons that we'd like to welcome craig mcintyre ken johnson james harrington and edwish Fenech, which is possibly a pseudonym although we like to pretend that it's not i like to think it's just ed future self just tuning in thanks very much for the support we really appreciate you uh, coming aboard as patrons yeah thank you very much do we have any new releases to discuss we do have some new releases i've made made a note of this do you want to start first peter should i there was one that you messaged me about and as Uh, you messaged me about it or do you want me to just say it myself sorry (laughs) i don't want to to take your thing because i was like you're the one that told me about it so i don't want to then be like oh this is news that I've just stolen from it is not is not that much glory in it <laughs> no <laughs> we were quite surprised to learn that um Severin are going to be releasing the fourth victim in their mm. next uh, spate of releases so yeah that was a real surprise because it's a film that we've considered doing on the show I think we actually banded it about yeah um as one of the films we were going to cover and then it just so happened to get announced we wonder if it was partly off the back of the Carol Baker jelly that they did earlier yeah um, quite possibly we don't think it's coming with any special features so we might well do an episode on it you know just to cover it as we originally intended to do so that's coming out so that'll be nice to see because the existing copies of it at the minute are quite poor yeah they're quite rough aren't they one of the rougher bootlegs floating about and it's one of those films that i didn't necessarily think we'd ever see on blu-ray so a very welcome addition absolutely what else have we got we've got 
the psychic coming from Shameless. I think most people probably already own a Blu-ray of that, but yeah, they're yeah. releasing that in the UK for UK only kind of buyers or people that don't have multi-region players even. So that's coming out. I don't know when, I think in a month or so, maybe August, probably should check these things before we record yeah. <laughs> and to give you some concrete dates that's coming out. Is there anything else? Our parcel is out. I've received the disc, but I've not had a chance to have a look at it yet. Neither have I. I've been too busy crying over commentary tracks yeah. <laughs> to, to watch too much this month. But yeah, that's that's out now and I've heard it's quite a good price. Yeah, it'd be good to follow the adventures of Whiskey the Dog in HD. Yes, Whiskey, our, our favourite yeah. animal friend. So Rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. Never forgotten. No. That's about it for now, I think, in terms of new releases. Not, not anything official. Sometimes you kind of hear things, but it's not official yet. So you want to just give it a month to see what how it pans out. Yeah. But we'll let you know next month and we'll be back to our monthly updates on releases then. So maybe we should just move on to this episode's film. I think that's a good idea. So um, I'll just give you the usual spoiler warning because as always we'll be discussing all aspects of the film including the ending. So if you haven't seen this film and don't want any spoilers for it we suggest you do pick up a copy of The Vinegar Syndrome Forgotten Jelly Box Set Volume 3. Watch the film and then come back to us. So with this month's episode of Fragments of Fear, we've decided to repeat what we did with our past episode on My Dear Killer. So tackling a shadow that's recently had an official release, but one that didn't have a commentary track or any extra critical features. We listened to your feedback and we know that some people voiced their frustrations at not being able to get hold of some of the films we discussed. So this is a good way of tackling an obscure shadow with a credible recent release without covering the same ground as a newly commissioned commentary track because we don't really want to step on anyone's toes. So therefore, the film we've decided to cover is Filippo Walteratti's Ivizzi Morbosi di una governante, or as it's known in English, Crazy Desires of a Murderer, a film that was featured in Vinegar Syndrome's Forgotten Jelly Volume 3 set, as you just said, Peter. And I believe there were no commentaries in that set, so if you wanted to know a bit more about Autopsy, which was also included, you can check out our very first episode on that film, which God knows how that sounds like, because I don't think I had a proper mic back then, but yeah. <laughs> Hopefully there's something interesting in there. We, we enjoyed doing that episode, so it's it's nice to see it. I think it still holds up fairly well. Good, yeah. So there you go, perfect companion to the film. But um, back to Crazy Desires of a Murderer. Now you'll see the film frequently cited as having a release state of 1977 however whilst the film was released in 77 it was actually shot and produced in 1973 and I'm sure Peter will talk a bit about that later on but once you're aware of the time of filming versus the time of release Crazy Desires of a Murderer makes far more sense as a film it's a shallow with gothic elements and with nods to the Argento style thriller so it was produced during a time when this sort of thriller was very much in vogue with the gothic elements a hang up from the late 1960s However, by 1977, the style of thriller had fallen out of favour with the number of Jalé released, dramatically decreasing from around 30 in 1972 to only 6 in 1977. So by the time Crazy Desires was released, there was less of an appetite for the traditional Jalé, especially one that would have appeared as rather dated. 
For example, we have references to films like A Clockwork Orange, La Salamandra, and La Biche, which seem culturally a bit out of fashion when you're thinking this is a film from 1977. But those references make far more sense when you realise Crazy Desires is a film from the period that those films were released in. But in the discussion of The Shallow, it's always important to remember that a select few titles released later on in the decade were in fact filmed and produced years earlier. Another example being The Police Are Blundering in the Dark, which was released in the mid-70s but filmed and produced in 1972. So I think it's important to address that discrepancy with dates before we start discussing the film as it informs the context we examine it in. And I don't think there's any need to give any more context than that. I'm sure everyone listening is more than familiar with the popularity of the Jalo. In 1973, uh, once we get into our themes and ideas section, we might very lightly touch on some of the minor references to historical goings-on at the time, but we will see. So um, over to you, Peter, to tell us about the film's director, Filippo Walter Ratti. Yes, he was born in Rome on June 13th, 1914, and he'd worked in the film industry since the late 30s, starting as an assistant director to Gennaro Rigelli. He made his directorial debut after the Second World War with a film Felicità Perdure, Lost Happiness, in 1946. And he continued working in a variety of genres, making mostly comedies, but also dramas, spy films, and even a version of Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol, set in 1950s Italy, starring Marcello Mastroianni. Neither of his films were particularly successful, some some even doing spectacularly poorly at the box office, like Vacanza sulla Nave in 1966, which only made $7 million, which wouldn't even be close to breaking even. His fortunes changed somewhat in 1971, when he, after a nearly five-year hiatus, directed the erotic drama Erika under the pseudonym Peter Rush. It was his first more overtly erotic film and it turned out to be his most successful one, making 323 million lira at the box office. It was followed by the sexy gothic horror The Night of the Damned in 1971, which failed to set the box office alight. And like you said, if you look at the IMDb, it appears that Ratti's next film was Mondo Erotico in 1973. But as we'll discuss a little bit later on, that was not quite the case. Crazy Desires of a Murderer was written and produced under the, the title Gliocchi Verdi della Morte, The Green Eyes of Death. And both the story outline and the script for the film was written by Palmambrogio Molteni. He credited as Ambrogio Molteni. If anybody recognises the name, it's probably as the director of the underseen 1964 Jalla Death on the Four poster. Molteni had mostly written peplar and western scripts, and Crazy Desires of a Murderer was his first Jalla script. It should also be noted that he worked as an assistant director on Emilio Morales' The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, and that he appears in a smaller role as the inspector's sidekick Moretti in this film. So, um, just give a quick synopsis as always. Returning to Italy after a worldwide trip abroad, the adventurous Countess Elena phones her wheelchair-bound father, Baron de Chablis, informing him of her imminent arrival and to let him know that she will be bringing her friends along for a short stay at the family castle, much to her elderly father's chagrin. Before he can properly object, he's taken by surprise by a bloodied-handed individual who enters his chambers. Sometime later, Elena and her friends arrive at the castle and greet the Baron, who's seemingly unharmed by his previous encounter, and the group make themselves at home for an evening of festivities. After a debauched game of charades, the guests retire to bed, but in the night, Elena's friend Elsa is gruesomely murdered, her eyes gouged from their sockets. Disturbed and frightened by what has occurred, the castle residents call the police in and are met by a limping inspector who's determined to find the culprit, 
even if it means uncovering the sordid secrets of the castle's inhabitants. Could the culprit be the nefarious drug smuggler Pierluigi, Berta the no-nonsense maid, or the Baron's mentally disabled son Leandro, who has a morbid fascination with taxidermy? As the inspector's investigation gets underway, the murders begin to escalate, and he must now decipher the truth and uncover the lies before more people fall victim to the crazy desires of a murderer. Ooh. I like that. Yeah, I was like, I've got to get nice a film title there. on that ending. Yeah. 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 You can hire me for your copy needs. <laughs> <laughs> it seems reasonable to start discussing the inspector a little bit. He's played by the wonderful Corrado Gaipa, a very good character actor, always standing out with his walking stick. And it's not just a an acting gimmick in this film he he had a walking stick and he went from from walking with a stick to being wheelchair bound at the end of his life Gaipa was born in Palermo on March 13th 1924 and he studied at the National Academy of Dramatic Arts in Rome studies which seems to have been interrupted by the Second World War but after the war he returned to to his studies and appeared both on stage TV and worked extensively on radio he didn't make his cinematic debut until 1969, when he, at the age of 45, appeared in Mauro Bolognini's Umbilissimo November. He would go on to have quite an illustrious Schwanner career, appearing in The Fifth Chord, My Dear Killer, Fulci's The Eroticist, Fernando de Leo's Il Boss, and Lucio Tessari's Tony Arcenta, as well as Massimo de Lomano's What Have They Done to Your Daughters. But he didn't work exclusively in genre films, though, he appeared in Notorious Callers, The Pizza Triangle, and Francesco Rossi's Illustrious Corpses, which is out on Blu-ray later on this year from Kino Lorber, as well as John Sturgis's The Valis Horses with Charles Bronson. And he also worked extensively as a dubber and was one of the founders of the dubbing company Cinevideo Doppiatori in 1970. Most famously, Gaipa appeared in Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather as Don Tomasino, and he was set to reprise the role in The Godfather Three when he passed away in Rome on September 22nd, 1989, at the age of 65. See, that's a nice bit of trivia about his cane. That's something you wouldn't have maybe expected, but... Um... I would have thought it was like a um, an acting gimmick. Yeah, that's what I thought. Before you told me that, I thought it was just a character quirk, but obviously, mm. yeah, something that he required. But yeah, a great actor, like you said, he's been in so many films with this kind of ilk and one of those faces that again one of those people that you might not know the name but you'll know the face yeah and you can certainly tell he's the actor with the most experience throughout the film I mean he really is the kind of standout performer here um yeah. I think you know when a character like this when they're on paper they don't really seem that interesting but then if you get a good character actor in to play them the role just kind of is really elevated yeah by the way that they kind of perform it for sure i can't think of many other films where he would get like top billing but he, he does get top billing in this film i know and it's a bit of a strange one because everybody in this film maybe that's a bit dramatic but pretty much everyone in this film it's like they're not really the people in this film are in roles that are maybe a bit too good for them like they, they were typically actors who were in a lot more kind of secondary roles in their career yeah not that I'm saying he was like he's a good actor, obviously, but you know, like it doesn't. Have, I suppose what I'm trying to say is the film doesn't really have much star power about it, other no. than him, and yeah. he's not like a main character. It's nice when you get these character actors that you know are good actors. They actually get a chance to get center stage for a change. Yeah, definitely, and you know, like inspector types, as we've gone over in this podcast and elsewhere, are often ones that are relegated to more minor roles, and he gets to yeah take center stage here, which is good. So should I go on to our kind of, well, I was going to say our main character, but they're initially presented as a main character, but aren't. Let's do it. So then we have Countess Elena de Chablais, who was played by the French actress Isabelle Marchal. 
Now, Marcel is one of the more elusive figures of Italian genre cinema, and upon her retirement from the film industry in the late 1970s, the actress appears to have disappeared without a trace, which makes it rather difficult to give you an overview of her life other than her film roles. The French-born Marcel appeared in 21 Italian films in her five-year career. It sounds like a lot, but she was frequently relegated to secondary or minor roles, not typically roles of much substance. Crazy Desires of a Murderer marks one of her more significant roles, but despite being initially painted as the film's protagonist, her role seems to dwindle, leaving her almost inconsequential to the events that occur in the film. However, going back to the start of her career, before transitioning into acting, Marcel began modelling for fashion magazines in her native France before moving to Italy to pursue acting opportunities as part of the course with many actresses of the time. This quickly led to her acting debut, an uncredited appearance as a prostitute in Terence Stamp's The Valachi Papers in 1972. This is followed with another uncredited appearance, this time in Ereprando Visconti's The Hassle Hooker in the same year. Although this time not as a prostitute, but as a petrol attendant. Deceptive name. <laughs> then came more legitimate credited roles, but typically very minor ones. Uh, she might be familiar to Fragments listeners for her role as fashion model Paola Whitney in The Crimes of the Black Cat. This was followed by other roles in the Jalo or Jalo adjacent films like Crazy Desires, as well as in a Blink and You'll Miss It role in Jalo parody Il Terrore con Gli Occhi Storti, and an uncredited appearance in Eyes Behind the Wall. And that was about the extent of her work within the Jalo. Her other roles were mostly in comedies and crime films, again in very minor parts that aren't particularly interesting to list. One of her more interesting roles, however, was in Luciano Ercoli's The Magnificent Daredevil from 1973, starring Nevis Navarro and Juliana Gemma, which is a crime thriller of sorts, I would say. Also worth mentioning for Emmanuel fans that she was in Black Emmanuel in 1975 as Gloria Clifton, again a more substantial role than she typically played. 1977 marked the end of her career with two performances in Nazi-themed fare. She was in Red Knights of the Gestapo with Corrada Gepa, playing a prostitute who engages in some unsavoury and uninhibited behaviour during the film's opening, which was then followed with a more comedic role as a Nazi scientist in the comedy Von Buttiglione's Truppenführer, which features a very funny performance from John Steiner. Post-1977, as I said, she seemingly disappeared into the ether. One would probably surmise that she aged out of the sort of role she was playing and likely decided to have a life away from the film industry, but alas, it's unlikely that we'll ever know. Another mystery woman. I know. You kind of wonder as well, like, if that is their real name or not, or if people get married and then it's hard to trace, like, who they were before and... Yeah. yeah, you just never know. And you can kind of understand as well maybe why somebody wants to distance themselves from those kind of roles. From Nazi comedies, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. could see that. Well, I'd rather be... I Well, I probably shouldn't say that. Because I was going to say I'd rather be in a Nazi comedy than be in Gestapo. Red Knights of, Red the, Gestapo. Red Knights of the, yeah. the Gestapo. Yeah, which is a bit more extreme. <laughs> <laughs> so the austere maid, Berta, was played by the Austrian actress Annie Carol Edel. Edel began her career in 1970, making her start in Radley Metzger's The Licorice Quartet as one of the prostitutes who appears in the porn film watched by Frank Wolf and Erica Ramberg. The uncredited role will come to define the rest of her career, which was characterised by exploitation-style roles, which often involved disrobing and simulating various sex acts. However, like Marshall, Edel was mainly relegated to secondary and minor roles. As an actress, she was particularly prominent in a genre that we've not discussed in much detail on the podcast, the decamerotic comedy erotic film set in medieval or renaissance films, obviously the name deriving from Giovanni Boccaccio's The Decameron, 
Edel was in five decamerotic films between 1972 and 1973, so she was very busy in that year, uh, working with the likes of Antonio Margheriti and Mariano Lorenti. She was in Lorenti's Ubeldo, All Naked and Warm, which is known for its leading performance uh, by Edwidge Finek. Throughout her 15-year career in the film industry, Edel was prominently in sex comedies or erotic films, the likes of Gloria Guida Vehicle Blue Jeans, and on the erotic side, she was in she was Mira in Joe D'Amato's Emmanuel and Francoise. She was also in a couple of mob films like La Mano Nera, which also featured Corrado Gaipa, alongside Fragment's favourites such as Philippe Leroy, Michele Placido, and Luigi Pastilli. However, for cult Italian film fans, her most famous performance is undoubtedly as the friend of Marta in Umberto Lenzi's Almost Human, in which she's tortured and tied up naked to a chandelier, one of the most striking images of the Plitziotechi. So even if you don't know her name, you'll know her face or her body from, from that. Edel took a break from acting in the late 70s, returning in the 80s for a few more minor roles before retiring from acting completely in the mid-1980s. Focusing on her private life for a moment, in the early 1970s, Annie began a romance with the prolific photoromancy model and actor Paolo Rossani. They were engaged to be married and had a daughter together named Sarah. Edel, who was, and I'm not entirely sure of her position because my research has conflicting statements, a Miss Universe contestant at the time, received a letter bomb from a jealous ex-lover of Rosani's. When opened, shrapnel from the explosive embedded itself in Rosani's left eye, permanently blinding him. And the ordeal seriously impacted upon his well-being, and he shortly fled to Brazil in 1974 to start a new life after the breakdown of the relationship with Edel. It was in Brazil that Rosani died in mysterious circumstances, falling from a balcony at his apartment in 1982. After retiring from the industry, Annie Carol Edel settled in Rome, which is where she died of a cancerous tumour in the mid-1990s. God, there was some drama there. I know, it's like, it just when I was researching, I came up, I found that, and I was like, oh my god, it's like letter bombs, and then fleeing to Brazil and dying in mysterious balcony accidents. Quite a shame, really. I mean, I found, it said she was like a Miss Universe, and then Miss Universo, and I checked like all the different kind of variations of those contests, and I couldn't find her listed as... A winner for those kind of years so i don't know if she was just like in the running or what but yeah interesting yeah. bert is such a plain role here that she doesn't really get a chance to to appear all glamorous so in this film you wouldn't think of her as a as a possible candidate for miss universe really no certainly not it's quite surprising isn't it i think like later on in the film you see her like disrobe and she's got the necklace on and her hair's all out and yeah she looks a bit more glamorous but yeah she's very much playing against type here because she's more of the kind of buxom titillation but um I suppose she does a bit of that here. Well, as you mentioned, that Guyper's really the most well-known name here. And mm-hmm. if we look at the other actors that appear in the film, I mean, Roberto Satini, who plays Pierluigi Larocca, only has this credited on the IMDb. And Giuseppe Colombo, who plays Frank Hoffman, hasn't really got all that many on-screen credits either. But he did end up as a producer whose work includes Argento's The Standard Syndrome and Phantom of the Opera. It was one of Chitano Russo's first film roles. You probably recognize him from The Killer Reserve Nine Seats and also one of Patrizia Gori's first roles. And she didn't really have a career of note either. I mean, it's very much like Isabelle Marshall in that she appeared in a lot of genre films in smaller roles. But there's not really all that much to say about any of the other actors. No, I think it's just like you've got Stuart Brisbane 
or Brisbane, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Colin, who was like kind of a, very much a background player in a lot of films, you know, always as like a doctor or a party guest or something like that. I think he was a parishioner in Seven Bloodstained Orchids, but that's there's not much to say, is there, other than listing no. like, you know, what film they were kind of in the background of a shot for. Yeah, it's not like there had been biographies about any of these actors written. No, and we don't want to kind of bore everyone by just listing off like IMDb credits unless there's something we think is like of note or, yeah. you know, we're trying to catalogue their careers. But it's difficult when you get down to these actors who have very little like um, on them in any mm. kind of, you know, research because nobody's going to do research on the person that played the parishioner in Seven Bloodstained Orchids, unfortunately. <laughs> right, should we move on to the film then? Yes, yeah, we might as well get into the, the beef. The meat. Yeah, where do you want to start? Oh, I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, you said earlier that the film is originally titled The Green Eyes of Death, which I was going to say yeah. to me, it feels like a title that makes a lot more sense because there's such a focus throughout the film on eyes, particularly green eyes. And, you know, whereas Crazy Desires of Murder doesn't really make sense in the film's conclusion, to be honest. Yeah. And we have this big focus on eyes throughout with lots of close ups of green eyes and shots of eyes peeping through keyholes, eyes in taxidermy and eyes being plucked out of the heads of victims. So yeah, it's a strange one because the title that we know it by isn't really very reflective of the film where we've got an original title that seems far more in keeping with what happens in the film. Certainly. It's very much a, a gothic influence, Jarlow. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, very much a strange mix of genres, isn't it? Because you've got the gothic horror, then you've got the like kind of Argento whodunit, and then all the kind of erotic elements that are, I would say, more overt than you would typically find in a Jarlow. Yeah, I mean, the, the gothic atmosphere was something that Ratty had, I think, fairly mm. competently provided in The Night of the Damned. I think that that's probably the better film out of these two, or the more interesting film of, the, of these two. But I mean, it's got the castle setting, you get like the bad the hidden and possibly mad sibling in the basement so it's got a great setup for that whole gothic thing and as i mentioned the writer of the film also worked on miraglius the night evelyn came out of the grave and that's obviously one of the more successful giallo gothic crossovers so it makes sense and like in that film they also ratty also incorporate some modernity into this gothic setting so you get this disco dancing scene and and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you talked about Ratti's career as a director and what he'd done just prior to this, you can certainly see that he's almost tried to incorporate what he was good at and successful at prior to making this film into this film but then also tried to take the whodunit formula and push that in as well yeah so it's not i wouldn't say it's wholly successful in that mix of genres but that's what he's trying to achieve here is make a more kind of gothic flavored show the main problem i think is that um Maltaine script incorporates this debt that Luigi has to these criminals and that doesn't work all that well I mean I think it slows things down from the central mystery Luigi and Bobby are running drugs and using girls to bring their, their wares through customs so when they join Elena and her friends at the castle to reclaim the drugs there's an awkward fighting with the thugs that he owes money and it doesn't add a whole lot of tension I think yeah it feels very much like a b-plot and we know that that's not really going to come to anything in terms of like the main like narrative of the murder in the castle so it just feels yeah like you say that we're kind of diverting away from what we want to see to something that's not particularly interesting um, like you say, I definitely feel like it slows the film down. I find it quite surprising when I rewatched it because there aren't really all that many murders in the film. No, there's certainly not. When you factor in all the stuff with Pierluigi and then you factor in the excessive number of sex scenes, it feels like 
why can't some of that time been given over to another murderer to yeah and that would have made quite a difference to the film's feel overall i think so too because i think the eyeball scooping scene the the murder of elsa is obviously one of the more memorable scenes in the film and i think that's done quite effectively and there are some gothic flavored scenes in the film when they're down in the basement where um, i think it's gretel who runs away when they meet leandra for the first time that's a really nice shot as well so it's not that ratty didn't have the know-how to put together a, a scene with some tension in it but the script sort of trips him up a bit because it spends more time on the drug subplots and quite a lot of time with Guyper talking to the suspects yeah it doesn't hang together as well as you feel it should do and then you have this portion in the film where you have, I think, almost like three or four sex scenes kind of one after the other. You go from yeah. the kind of debauch charades game where we have like the Clark Orange reenactment and Labiche and all of that. And then, so that's kind of a bit of like lesbian titillation. And then you go to like, it's Bobby and Elena, right? And then you've got Elsa and Pierluigi. Is that right? Pierluigi, yeah, yep, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. Um, and it just feels like, and then you've also got the scene with Leandro and um, Berta. You just feel like yeah. there's so much time, like at one point in the film, dedicated to it that it feels it would feel excessive even if it was spaced out. But yeah, when it's all so close together, like I would just rather have a murder at this point. I don't need this much like sex all in one block. No, it's a really it's a really odd choice to to more or less put four sex scenes like in a row. I can't understand it. I find it really odd because I've never encountered that in another shallow. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. No. Some of them are more sexual than others. It's not the issue that it's got more sex than perhaps you would want to see in it in which I was just that it's paced strangely it's definitely paced strangely because normally they would have been spaced out a bit they would have thrown in a murder between the sex scenes or something like that but here you get them all in in a block and then that's that's, that's all it. the sex scenes done with yeah because with other Jali, like you get this thing where it's like there's sex tied into some sort of overarching narrative about like you know a romantic narrative but we don't have that here either so we're just kind of like almost like isolated sex scenes that don't really serve any function like they don't have that function as a red herring i wouldn't say no i think the only the only one that I would say maybe serves a purpose, really, is the like Oedipal kind of complex that's developed about Leandro and his yeah. mother, you know, and his mother and Berta. I mean, that serves a purpose, but the other ones just seem, even as like a bit of titillation, it's like all together, it, it just seems rather odd. Usually they're kind of woven into the narrative a bit more convincingly than what we see here. Yeah, it's strange. Like you say, the, the sex scene between Berta and Leandro is, is the one that makes some kind of sense in, in terms of the overall story, really. We get the quite common giallo trope of childhood trauma because Elena and Leandro's mother was attacked by a gardener and the attack was witnessed by Leandro and everybody sort of assumes that this attack has traumatized him for life and he's ostensibly spending time in a clinic in Beirut but he's really holed up in the basement down there stuffing animals as you said but in reality the trauma seems to stem more from the fact that Leandro walked in on his mother and her lover and that he seems to have stabbed the lover so now he's spending his time hugging a grave and he's tormented by this memory of the attacks he seems to have found this mother figure in in Berta and she's protecting him when the servant Hans is getting a bit too rough with him and she calls him my boy so there's definitely this Oedipus complex thing happening here but that's that's about as much characterization as you get in this film really isn't it 
Yeah, I mean, certainly that's the standout kind of attempt at going for a psychological bent. But I mean, we have these earlier Shally, which are less focused on pop psychology and more towards blackmail and scamming. And yeah, Crazy Desires tries to do both because you've got Leandro as this disturbed young man after this incident in his youth. Um, So that does fit the remit of psychological disturbance that we're also familiar with. And we also have the real killer's motive, which isn't psychological at all, but it's based on greed. Um, So yeah, the psychological disturbance here isn't actually the cause of the murders. It's like, I suppose it's supposed to act as a red herring, isn't it? But then already, even without that, Leandro's so kind of obvious as the killer that, Mm. you know, he's never going to really be a suspect. So I don't know if the Oedipal complex is more to almost kind of make the viewer feel uncomfortable or to kind of assert certain questions about his relationship with his mother or, you know, like what happened that night, which we find out in flashback. I mean, fairly I think in the middle of the film isn't it but yeah and that's the thing it's like kind of you you've go from like the psychological disturbance to a fairly rudimentary earlier Shelley kind of thing now I find it difficult to know because I mean we're looking at these films right now we've seen a lot of Jally and like you said Leandro is he's such a, an obvious suspicious character with like his taxidermy interest and he removes eyes and you just know from the beginning that he couldn't possibly be the culprit you sort of wonder how many people that saw this at the time of release or who who were supposed to see this at the time of, of the original release that would have been fooled by this plot point or not. It just seems quite obvious. Yeah, it does. And especially if you consider this film came out in 77 when like the genre has been like well traversed, it feels like audiences would have been probably quite a fay with like this sort of setup. Yeah, but in fairness though, I think even if Leandro is quite obvious as, you know, a red herring, there's some nice scenes with him. Like we've got that image of the bloodied hand coming out of the crypt, which again feels like very kind of gothic horror. Yeah. Um, but then we have those scenes, as you mentioned, in the when he's doing his taxidermy and you see um, all these wee furry friends being carved up and you've got the battered fox and badger and I think a wee Airedale terrier on display. And it's, yeah, it's, it's like that special interest in the eyes. And although it's nothing more than a bit of kind of macabre diversion, it's, it's a rather nice scene, like the, his like little macabre workshop. Yeah. And then we have the box, don't we? Where again, it's that focus on the eyes and we have that close-up shot of his eyes shrouded in kind of darkness. And then he opens the box and we don't see what's in the box until later where it's revealed there's a pair of green eyes. Yeah, which is a really great shot. So even though it's like you're watching it going, well, this isn't really going to come to anything. There's there's still kind of well-done scenes. Mm. It was quite gory, that taxidermy scene as well. With the eyeballs yeah. again, which seem a bit... Well, maybe I, don't, I was going to say they seem a bit too big. I don't know like, what animal it is or how big an animal's eye should be when they're plucked out of its head. But yeah, it's quite gruesome. Yeah, but the eyeball scooping of Elsa is... Really, yeah. Yeah, that's quite graphic as well. Obviously of interest for all of those who owned or seen the, the old Redemption tape, which was because it was that scene that was cut back in the day, I think five seconds or something. Yeah, by the BBFC. Yeah. And there's also this other plot point where Elena's and Leandro's mother is buried with this rare emerald worth 150 million lira, which, of course, Pierluigi sees as a possible way to solve his money problems. Yeah, I quite, you know, I, that's one thing I do actually really like about the film. I might, I might not like the Pierluigi, like, storyline but I do like this idea of the princess I think that's what they call her in the film the princess I think her her real name on the the grave is Saiwai Suni um and you're kind of led I think the story is that the baron married a woman from Thailand when she was only 16 and took her back home and you know you wonder if this is one of his expeditions to the east and honing his artistic knowledge and yeah she tragically died and is entombed in the in the castle grounds with that massive emerald and 
I think what I like about it is that it's the lore that's presented with her character. And we have that wonderful portrait of her that hangs in one of the castle's rooms, this like enigmatic princess who surveys the castle in an almost like omnipresent way. And because you have these gothic trappings in the film, you're almost like to believe, is there something more with that? Is she really alive? Is something happened? Was she more active in the murder than, you know, just like, I think it's kind of presented as, you know, like self-defense, but you think is, was it some other kind of plot that was going on? I mean, I don't know if we actually establish if she's the mother of Elaine or not no i just assumed that she was maybe not i wasn't i was thinking because of the coding of the characters like their appearance but maybe not i don't know but um yeah yeah it opens up these questions for the viewer and i think that's that's well done in the film even if it comes to nothing Mm. i always like you know when you have like a painting in a shadow and you like the red queen kills seven times is another one and like again it's the painting that kind of presents this lore of the film and it's a nice visual representation of her character in that emerald you can Mm. kind of see why pierre luigi is so desperate to have it because it's this you know like huge piece that dominates her headband but like say they could probably have made more with that because Mm -hmm. she's never really mentioned as a possible threat either as a ghostly presence or that um, there are rumors that she would be alive and come back to haunt somebody who stole her diamond or something seems like a little bit of a lost opportunity there yeah exactly that's kind of me filling in with like what i would expect to be amped up a wee bit more in the film but obviously it's not like you say it's a missed opportunity because there's it's an intriguing premise it just never really comes to anything other than kind yeah. of a few bits of dialogue and then this idea in the drug plot, which we both said we're not a huge fan of anyway. No, because you could easily have seen uh, like this ghostly figure walking around the castle. Yeah, especially when she's got those like big green eyes as well. You think, does that factor in in some way? Because yeah. you see the green eye like peeking through the peephole and you could maybe even think, oh, is that like the her ghost? Is that her still alive and wandering the castle like hallways? But yeah, yeah. not really that overt in the film. Because all the main characters, they're quite, I mean, they're just there as pawns, really. There's no character development really in, in anybody. And it's like the usual thing where people go, oh, like, well, characters in Jolly are like really poorly written anyway. And like, yeah, it's true that it's not like a genre kind of known for its deep characterization, but, you know, judging as we always do by the standards of the genre like this is fairly weak in terms of its characters i mean like i said and when i was talking about isabel her character is presented as the lead female in the film and then doesn't really do anything no you don't even really see much of her relationship with leandro i think she brings back you know some beads from china for the eyes of the animals but yeah but there's very little there and there's some interaction between her and her father but that's that's about it one of my favorite things about the film that you mentioned this game of charades where they reenact these sex scenes from films first from Cavalloni's La Salamandra and then the sex scene from A Clockwork Orange I really like little touches like that that nod towards other cinematic productions it's quite unusual isn't it I mean it's it yeah. stands out to me it's like oh it's like a, a Jalo that references other films it just doesn't seem to happen very often and I love no. the Clockwork Orange bit because that's like one of my favorite films and I'm like oh my god it's just like funny yeah. to see them do their own take on it for charades. Um, I've never seen anyone do do it like that before. <laughs> and like when I've played, like <laughs> it's quite like a sexual game of it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, interesting with Cavalloni's La Salamandra as well because that shows that that was probably. I mean, it's not a particularly talked about film now, but it must have been a fairly talked about film at the time. If they're going to reference it in a film like this, yeah, especially when they're referencing it alongside something like a Clockwork Orange, which was like a yeah. huge yeah deal at the time. Yeah, certainly interesting. Another thing that I like about the film when we're talking about kind of current issues and stuff is like the kind of political aspect to it. I mean, like many Jali, there's 
like you know a, just a slight peppering of political issues or the political climate of the time nothing very deep but early on in the film the group discussed Formosa which was the former name of Taiwan and they talk about how with money you can get anything over the border and there's this idea that with a bit of money you can buy anything so it feels like it's typical western culture imposing on other cultures and buying up and smuggling artifacts out of the country and there's also talk about opening up to the west and permits so you can see that shift starting to occur and of course the group talk about Mao and Nixon resolving their differences with cockfighting. Of course, Nixon visited China in historic talks in 1972 in a bid to establish relations between the two countries. So this is very much a political issue of the time. And there's even a bit of commentary on Americans feeding growth hormones to chickens, which feels like a conversation that's still happening these days. And yeah. also makes you think of a film like Death Lady Neck, where factory farming is addressed. Um, so the political references within these scenes aren't particularly relevant to anything that occurs in the film, but they're interesting nonetheless. And yeah, there's quite a few examples of this in the shadow where, you know, people sit around a table and they have, you know, like their whiskey and kind of get all philosophical or, you know, they're supposed to be kind of left wing radicals and talking about the political climate. Yeah, and I always like those kind of scenes. It just kind of gives you a window into stuff that's going on in the time. Yeah, for sure. How do you feel about the scenes with the inspector and talking to Ileana and her friends? And because he seems to stay at the castle in an effort to solve the murder, which is quite like it makes me it makes me think a bit of like those scenes and like the premise of him staying at the castle makes me think of something like Agatha Christie. Yeah, it's almost like the premise of like a murder mystery weekend. You know, there's like really popular ones where it's like you go to an English country house and yeah, reenact like a murder, and there's all these different suspects. I think yeah. like you mentioned earlier, I like the inspector, and I like the idea of him solving the case and taking center stage. But I feel like those scenes, yeah, maybe just go on a wee bit too long, and they're a bit dull. Yeah. So as much as you like his character and like him, you know, trying to outdo them, and I'm going to find out what you've been up to, maybe just outstays its welcome a bit. No, I agree. It's not particularly inspiring and it's not really shot in a way that's really interesting either. It's quite flat. Mm -hmm. There's not a really dynamic camera there that can sort of liven it up a bit. It's just, it's there. Yeah, and there's no tight sense of like, like you say, if you know someone lived off of it with like some clever editing or clever shots or whatever, then maybe it would feel like, you know, time's passing in a better way. But it just feels, you know, like one scene after the other of like him interviewing people in exactly the same way. I think like yeah. a different director would have handled that differently. Yeah. Sorry, I was just looking at my notes there and I just saw the big cat in capital letters. Um, what's going on with that candle? Yeah. <laughs> Could like not mention that before the episodes out. No, but it it seems like there are a couple of scenes that were cut before release because that sex scene is is cut short. Quite obviously, is mm-hmm. is a quite jarring cut. Yeah, it's quite clunky. Yeah, but those two scenes are present in the cine romanzo in the photo novel of the film. So there are two stronger sex scenes that were edited out of the film before release. Which right, it's probably a good call, not on the fact that they're stronger, but just the fact that like it already seems like too much. In terms of length in the film as we know it so we probably could have done without a few extra minutes of like more sex because it feels like it goes on for nearly quarter of an hour or something probably not probably 10 minutes or something but still goes on for a bit yeah especially when you see that candle and you're like oh my god what's gonna happen and then it cuts and you're thinking oh excuse me i probably would have preferred to have seen that than all the the kind of run up to it yeah (laughs) towards the end the inspector decides to to reenact the night of the murder Mm mm-hmm and basically putting Gretel in harm's way because he's convinced that 
that, that the murder is going to come out now. And uh, it turns out that Leandro is Dr. Olsen's son. We haven't really spoken about Dr. Olsen. But no, I was just going to say that before you mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, this family doctor who's around who seems to be a bit of a drunk and who's been teaching Leandro how to do taxidermy. Mm-hmm. So Hans thinks that Leandro is responsible for the killings and that Dr. Olsen won't tell the inspector about it because it's his son, obviously, so he won't give him up to the police and that he can count on the inspector not putting it together himself. But it turns out that is his wrong and he pays with his life, bursts his lashes his throat after throwing the doctor off a cliff. She's the one behind all this and the inspector manages to flush her out by pretending to be the Baron and he's inserted this silver tray into his smoking jacket. Yeah. Which he stabs him and she falls down on the stairs. On the subject of the ending of the film, I do have to say I think it's a rather charming ending. Like, perhaps not particularly dramatic, but I think it certainly has a sense of fun about it. You know, the inspector disguising himself as a baron was a nice, clever play on the audience's perception of, you know, what's occurring on screen. Yeah. And I like how he's the one that foils the murder with this orchestrated ruse. And it just feels very lighthearted at the end when you get that final shot with the inspector's almost smug sort of comical expression. And he um, arrests Pierluigi and Bobby as well. Yeah. Kills two birds with one stone. (laughs) Yeah. But that's quite good because you've had all the stuff throughout the film about like um, the Eastern Asian art that the Baron collects. And then it turns out that the Chinese paper that they used is what foils their drug plot. So then that has some sort of relevance in the ending. The fact that, you know, the Baron's such a big collector or expert, even. The inspector is like this, like you said, uh, Agatha Christie, like a Poirot or mm-hmm. like a Columbo type character who manages to um, put it all together in the end. Yeah, he just like the A A plot and the B plot are just perfectly wrapped up yeah. at the end in that one scene. Yeah, so I mean, I was researching something the other day and the director of the show, I won't say what it is, but he said he wanted to make a film with a pessimistic pessimistic ending because he felt like a lot of Jali were um, neatly wrapped up and didn't have much poignancy in their endings. And that really got me thinking about what films in the subgenre have a bleaker ending. And naturally, we're doing crazy desires of a, of a murder. And I was thinking that is completely on the other end of the spectrum. You know, yeah. it's very neatly wound up with a happy kind of comical ending. And I think sometimes that's just what you want, isn't it? It's yeah. just like when I finished watching this again, I was just smiling at the end with that, with the inspector's face on screen. It's it's maybe not, I'm try, again, I'm trying to think of other films we've covered. It's, it feels quite different as an ending to a lot of films we've covered on the podcast. Yeah, I can't remember any, any of the films that have had like an upbeat, slightly jokey ending like this. Or maybe um, Fashion Murders had a similar thing because they were talking about the general the general fish yeah 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 that's true yeah it's because like most of them like they end like you know everything's is either you know a downbeat ending or you get the kind of romantic plot comes through and it's you know they kind of go off hand in hand yeah and somewhere walking off into the distance but this one yeah it does seem more comical again i guess again it's because the inspector isn't usually the focus in these films that's probably a good observation, actually. Yeah, because it's very much, you know, he's solved the mystery. So it's yeah. like he gets to revel and like some good police work. And then everyone else is like, oh, thanks, Inspector. Like, now I'm just thinking of like Greta, like being all happy after being put in the killer's way. Well, I guess it was never a threat, was it? But still, <laughs> questionable police practice. Slightly questionable. Yeah. By the way, don't you think Berta looks a little bit like a bargain bin Rosalbaneri? Oh, do you think I can kind of see it like a bargain bin Rosalba Neri, but also a touch of Olga Carlotta's? Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be a good description of are those two actresses mixed together. It's interesting to, if we took this film and we're like, who would be cast? Like we said earlier, like the cast isn't great. It's not exactly, you know, full of cult figures. But yeah, I wonder who we would cast if it was. And probably Rosalbaneri would be good in that role. Yeah, and definitely. It feels like if they could have cast anybody they wanted to, it seems like a Barbara Boucher type role. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Or maybe even like a Carol Baker style role. Yeah. Now just basically and... naming out blonde people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we'll give uh, Peter Bach the Leandro role. Yeah. And then maybe we could, <laughs> George Hilton could be Pierre Luigi. <laughs> it's always funny to sort of play around with these films a little bit, the ones that are sort of slightly less successful. I mean, there are, there are things to enjoy about this, and I think there are some genuinely good gothic moments here but as a few of the other films that we covered i think there's not quite enough here and it feels like if they dialed up certain aspects of the film it would have been a, a more successful one that's the thing it's like i enjoyed re-watching this film like in preparation for the podcast and i think it is an enjoyable film i think you know people will have fun with it it's just probably could have been a lot better if with a yeah. few changes it wouldn't have taken all that much. A, f- a few more murders and a little bit less the drug plots and it would have been a, obviously not a classic, but a, a competently made mm-hmm. Jalo. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably a good point to um, get on to some other topics, don't you think? Yeah, there's not all that much left to, to say in, in terms of themes and that sort of thing. So I agree with you. Yeah, not too theme heavy. Some episodes of the show we end up like talking about themes for a long time. We go really like in depth, but yeah, it's not there's not too much to say here. No. I'll talk a little bit about the production history because as we mentioned, the film was shot under the title Giochi Verde della Morte. And the production history seems to have been quite difficult. I mean, obviously it's listed as a nineteen seventy seven film. But it appears that it was shot in probably even nineteen seventy two to be released then during the height of the Jallo boom. Ratti was 58 years old at the time. It was produced by Salvatore Siciliano for G. Barsi Cinematografica, and the film was his sole production credit. He'd worked mostly as a construction manager on sets and as a production supervisor. The director of photography was Gino Santini, who'd worked as a camera operator since the early 60s before graduating to director of photography in the late 60s and he shot quite a few westerns including Django the Bastard and Shango. Like I said it remained unreleased for quite a few years and exactly why is somewhat of a mystery. There are promotional materials for the film with the original title around and as I mentioned there's a Futuromanso published in the Cinesex magazine from 1973 which shows some of the stronger sex scenes that are present in the film and shout out to Johan Melle and his great blog Eurofever for making me aware of that Cinesex issue. It finally got its censorship visa May 25th 1976 but it wasn't released until April 1977 and now they changed the title to the more erotic sounding The Morbid Vices of a Housekeeper which was obviously an effort to capitalise on the more erotic orientated marketplace and it's really quite a poorly chosen title because it really gives you an indication on who's guilty mm-hmm. and it's not that easy to come up with who the killer is when you're watching the actual film. At least I don't think so. No, it's not. It's a very strange choice of, you know, title. I mean, I'm saying, like, the English title isn't great, but at least it doesn't tell you who the killer is. Yeah. It's not great. A contemporary review from April 1977 mentions that despite the title, it's not a traditional sexy film, but rather a detective story. But the female protagonists are not without charm. (laughs) Always, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, always. 
And the reviewer goes on to say something along the lines of the film is competently directed and succeeds in capturing the interest of the spectators in certain moments. (laughs) The candle. I haven't found any box office figures, so I'm not really sure how much of a distribution it got in the end in 1977 either. I mean, as you mentioned, the Jello boom was long over and the, the other product that was released in the market at this time had a much higher quota of sex and violence. So the only way to see the film really was that redemption tape for quite a few years until Vinegar Syndrome released it. Yeah, so I mean, you've given a really like good comprehensive overview of like, what is kind of known about the film's production. It's like when I was researching, I found the same thing about 1972 I put my notes it's like 1972 and then I looked at more sources and they were saying like 1973 and then I was like oh that's like two different trusted sources that say 73 so it seems really hard to pin down exactly what was going on but I think like you're right it probably was maybe filmed at the tail end of 72 the release of early 73 but again it's like you know speculation isn't it and yeah unfortunately there's just I mean no information out there well, any, any information that we can find from usual sources. I mean, you come across films like this where it's quite difficult. And most of the reviews and stuff mentions that it's a 1977 film. So a lot of people just think that it's made at, at that time. Yeah, because when I was doing like the Police Are Blundering in the Dark like audio essay, I found like a lot of people in reviews afterwards were like commenting on the fact it was 1975 and they were kind of contextualizing it in that year. Mm. But because I mean I know this is different because it had a this is a release date of seventy seven but yeah it does make quite a difference to the discussion of the film when you're looking at it having a much earlier like scheduled like release date or filming date if we didn't know that then we would just sit here and go well seventy seven you know we had the psychic and why is there all these gothic elements like this and why are they talking about Clockwork Orange in a film from like so many years later but then we'd be completely kind of assessing it wrongly yeah. It's a fair point to say maybe that's what audiences would have thought compared to those films. But as you know, as us trying to contextualise it in the time it was made, not so much. Yeah, if we're going to judge it, we're going to have to judge it against the films that were made in 1972, 1973, and not against the film that were made in 1977, because it was a completely different ball game at that time. Yeah, because it's even like people might say, I mean, not with this film but you do get films where people go oh this ripped off a scene from this I mean mm. like like who saw her die I mean if you got the year out by you know if they got a year out or two years out like that would completely like change where the you know the don't look now kind of comparison yeah as to what it is so yeah it's it's funny when you kind of end up citing scenes saying oh this is like a rip off of that when you know it's like a film that came out before that or yeah. the same year mm. it's like you know an interesting one do you have anything on on production design or uh, yeah, I have mainly stuff on setting. I mean, there's not. I've got a wee bit on costume, but there's obviously not too much to say on on, on that respect. Setting wise, we're very much contained within one location, but that's very typical of the, these sorts of chalet that draw upon more gothic elements, where we typically find our characters almost trapped inside a haunted house or a house of the damned, so to speak. And as Peter discussed, these gothic overtures were very much present in Ratty's earlier work, so it's a fitting use of location for a director previously concerned with the gothic. Sorry, going back to some of our previous fragments episodes, Murder Clinic and Libido were both chalet with a more gothic flair than most, so I personally grew up crazy desires in with those sorts of titles despite being a slightly later entry and much of that gothic presence is felt in the film setting of the de Chablis family castle, an impressive looking construction that in reality was Castello Massimo in our solely near Rome. Now 
I wonder if you can help clear this up for me, Peter, because this is a bit of a tricky one. I believe the film is supposed to take place in Würzburg, or at least that's what the car license plates say, in what other Jalo purportedly takes place there, or at least is filmed there. Uh, is it um, the Red Queen kills seven times? Yeah. So, yeah. However, the de Chablis castle in the film appears to be on or near the Swiss border. We see a number of Swiss flags when a car goes around to bend on the way to the castle, but Würzburg isn't anywhere near Switzerland. So who knows if the film is supposed to take place in Germany, Switzerland or Italy. The names suggest to me that it's Switzerland, as do the flags, but then the castle looks like a stand-in for Marienburg Fortress um, and we have the Würzburg license plates. So maybe I'm being stupid, but I'm not sure where it's actually supposed to take place. <laughs> However, one thing I do know is that whilst the castle's exterior shots were of Castello Massimo, the interiors were mainly shot at Palazzo Borghese in Artina, again near Rome. The distinctive Medusa head fireplace that we see a few times in close-up shots can also be seen in Renata Pozzelli's The Vampire and the Ballerina. And you can see why it was a focus for both Pozzelli and Ratti. It's a rather striking piece of ornamentation that very much evokes the gothic feel of both films. And we can't talk about the gothic setting without acknowledging the catacombs under the castle, the domain of Leandro and a place to conduct his gruesome taxidermy. And I love seeing the various characters scuttling around the catacombs and you imagine they're a means of accessing all sorts of areas of the castle. So yeah, we assume the culprit is somewhat very familiar with them and can use them as a means of evading detection. Of course, it's also fitting, as you've already said, Peter, that Leandro is hidden down in the catacombs. You know, he's the dirty secret of the de Chablis family held as a prisoner of sorts in the depths of the castle. And it recalls the way in which um, those with psychiatric conditions were often condemned to being holed up in basements and attics away from polite society, so to speak. Just another thing about the set dressing, we know that the Baron has dedicated his life to the study of Eastern Asian art and that's reflected within the castle's rooms which have lots of Asian artefacts. You see the Baron studying a bright red statuette in the film's beginning and there's quite a lot of red set dressing throughout the film as well. Fairly typical for these rich gothic settings. In terms of costumes, as I said, there's not a huge amount to say here. The film's seamstress was Renata Renzi, whose most notable cinematic credit is as wardrobe supervisor on 1990 The Bronx Warriors. And that's a film I absolutely love for costume design, but unfortunately we don't have anything like that here. Um, Yeah, they're fairly run-of-the-mill. Nothing that really jumps out at you other than some kind of typical party costumes, feather boas and bright pink kind of navel cut tops. Um, One thing I did like, however, about the costume design is that when we're first introduced to Elena and her character as the daughter of the Baron, we see both characters in similar matching knitted hats, asserting a kind of visual connection between, between the two of them. It's a fairly low budget affair, so it's it's not one of those areas that they tend to really go crazy with then, is it? Yeah, and there's there's no need to. It's yeah. you know, you need the kind of important things are like the servants' costumes and having something that looks kind of vaguely partyish for those scenes, but yeah. It's not like they're gonna be decked out in designer wear or anything. I just mentioned the music as well. Mm-hmm. The score was written by Piero Piccioni, who's probably best known for his work on Camille 2000, The Tenth Victim, and in terms of Jello in the Eye of the Hurricane. There's a quite moody theme that, that I quite like, but overall is not one of his more memorable efforts. In fact, I think it sounds like a few of the cues are recycled from somewhere else, but I haven't been able to place them. 
I tweeted about this a while back, but I think it might be of interest to mention that Piccioni was a suspect in a high-profile murder case in the 1950s. I read Stephen Gondal's Death and the Dolce Vita, The Dark Side of Rome in the 1950s about the Montesi case, where a young woman, Wilma Montesi, had been found dead on a beach under mysterious circumstances, and Piccioni, who was the son of a prominent politician, was a suspect was on trial. He didn't get off until he reluctantly produced a witness who was none other than the well-known actress Alida Valley, who claimed that she'd been with him at the time. So a small bit of trivia there, which I didn't really know about until I read that book. I think there are some other cues that were thrown in there as well that I can't quite place, but there's one that sounds remarkably like the music that's playing during the party scene in um, Anita Strindberg's flat in A Lizard and a Woman's Skin. Although I don't think it's the Morricone track that they've cribbed, but it sounds like it might be inspired by that. I don't know if you noticed any connections there. Um, no, but I've, I've never got that much of a musical ear for these sorts of things. I'd be interested to go back and listen to that bit of music from Lizard in a Woman's Skin to see if it's similar. But yeah, it would just be probably like a passing thing. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, it's the summation of, of the film. <laughs> So in the myriad of Jalis shot in Italy in the early 1970s, crazy desires of a murder are certainly not an entry that breaks the cinematic mould. However, it's an entertaining hour and a half that blends different fads and genres of the era together, even if it's not wholly successful in doing so. A fun performance from Corrado Gepa injects the film with some much-needed joviality and is perhaps the film's saving grace alongside some rather gruesome scenes of bloodletting and eyeball gouging. All in all, it's a welcome addition to the Pantheon of Jali, now available on Blu-ray, and it's a delight to see the film as intended. I think it sums it up really well. I mean, it's not a classic Jello in any sort of capacity, but I'm really happy that it's out there in a restored version. I'm, I'm really pleased that Vinegar Syndrome keep bringing these lesser-known films out. Absolutely. It's, you know, kind of what we love, and it's great to see that another label is kind of focusing on those more obscure end titles. Basically, like what it equates to is almost like what you were saying about like reviews at the time, which is, you know, competently shot, you know, it's it's competent, it's kind of average. And I don't mean that as like a criticism. It's just, you know, it's it's what it is. I mean, sometimes you discover older Jali and you're like, wow, this should be bigger or, you know, it should be really mm. respect. You know, like when we, t- we talk about the double I mean, we both, yeah. you know, always thought the double really deserves a release and that there's so much to say kind of thematically and this, that and the other. But here, you know, it's it's fine. It's It's a fun enough murder mystery. That's all mm. you want sometimes. Yeah. And it's good that we're seeing films like this released. And then, you know, hopefully Vinegar Syndrome. Well, you know, the good thing actually when you look at the set is it's quite a good mix of films. Like you've got Autopsy, which is really great. And you've got mm. this, which is fine. And Maniac Mansion is also really fun. Um, it's a good, good atmosphere and has more of the gothic in it. So we're just happy to see different types of films, see the yeah. variations within the within the jelly, and it does make a difference to see them cleaned up. Like you were saying, like that rip of this is not great. So if you haven't seen this yet, you definitely need to check it out. And if you've only seen it before in a, on the VHS copy, then you, mm-hmm. I think you should definitely break out your Blu-ray yeah. version of this and have a look at it. Especially to see the um, slightly drunk-looking fox. You can add it to yeah. your stills of tax- bad taxidermy in, in the jowl. <laughs> Yeah. Alongside, yeah, what's it in? Um, ah, oh, bloody hell, what's it called? Paranoia. That there's a yeah. dodgy looking fog oh, yeah. in that as well. <laughs> yeah, that one doesn't look great, does it? <laughs> 
So in the next patron episode, which we'll be recording next week, we'll discuss Domiziano Cristoforo and Daniele Trani's 2020 Giallo Nightmare Symphony, which has recently been released on Blu-ray by Tetra Video. And if you do want to become a patron, you can sign up at patreon.com slash fragments pod and you'll get access to all our previously recorded patron episodes and all our upcoming patron episodes to get access to those you have to pledge at the five dollar level and as always for our patrons if you've got any ideas about things you'd like us to cover in our episodes then yeah just give us a message um and as yeah. always you can follow us on social media if you want to do it that way um we're on facebook and instagram at fragments pod and you can find our individual twitter accounts at at signor ward and at rachel underscore nisbet and of course if you want to send us something a bit more lengthy then get in touch via our email address which is fragmentspod at gmail.com I haven't been that active on Twitter lately, but I do check it out. So if you do tag me, then then I'll find it. It's just that I've been trying to spend slightly less time on social media lately. Which is very wise. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Probably too busy as well. <laughs> a, a, a detox. I know. It's like you realise how much time you waste on it when you should be working on fragments or a commentary or whatever else. <laughs> exactly. Work harder on preparations for the upcoming fragments episode. Exactly. That's that what better. we'll divert our time into that. Yeah. Our theme music is the Aerosarks cover of Ritz Ortolani's Seven Bloodstained Orchids theme. You can find this track and much more of their great music at castleosox.com that's it for now thank you very much for listening to this episode until next time bye bye